0: Daniel, chapter 11, verse 32, uh, one of the more famous verses of the last section of Daniel. We know the first sort of half of Daniel quite well. We don't tend to, to maybe be just as familiar. It's a bit more tricky to read the latter half of the book. But every now and again, if you're reading it, you, you, you find a little verse that you just, you can grasp and get hold of. Here's one in eleven thirty-two. Daniel says, The people who know their God, shall stand firm and take action. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Different versions of your, your English Bible might have different phrases there at the end after stand firm. It's hard to sort of fill it in. Just it's, it's, it's sort of left open in the Hebrew what way it should be, but certainly it says the people who know their God shall stand firm. And I have had three people who know their God on my mind, if I can get this to work. Yeah, this last few months. So ever since we came out of lockdown, I've been thinking about these three. Uh, Those of you that have been about for a while, maybe for four or five years, I have preached on each of these three before. And I've just been waiting over the past few months to try to find out when should I preach on them again. When should I share this? Because we have come out of, you know, 18 months of being, uh, of uncertainty and of being sort of held down and restricted a wee bit. Things are starting to ease a little bit, not as much as we would like, but we're, we're making a little bit of progress. And I want us to shake off the, the lethargy of lockdown And come out of our caves a little bit and and be once again the people of God who know God and who stand firm and who stand up and who take action. So these three people in particular, Jonathan, Caleb and Abigail, are three people in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures. And I love their stories. Their stories are short. Each of them only really, you know, step onto the pages of our Bibles for a short time and then step off again, but the impact that they have is huge. The attitude that they have is class. They will not just sit back. They will not quit. They will not be bowled over. They will not be complacent or mediocre. They are wholehearted people who take a stand because they know the character of God. So I want to look at the three of them, one this morning, and then over the next couple of weeks, we we will do the other two. So go to First Samuel please, chapter 13. First Samuel 13. I absolutely adore this little story. First Samuel 13, we'll get the, the background, and then in the chapter 14, we'll sort of get the story itself. So what we've got is a clicker that won't work. Oh we're gone now. Yeah. 1 Samuel 13 gives us a, a bit of a glimpse into the state of God's people. Now, this is, this is before the cross. This is Israel. This is the Old Testament. But I think we can sort of lift some of the things that they are experiencing and apply them to God's people throughout the ages. They've got an enemy, the Philistines. And the picture is pretty bleak. We start off in, in verse 5 of chapter 13. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Okay, that's obviously a very intimidating threat. They went up and they camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. You've got God's people facing this threat and they are hiding, hiding in hedges, hiding in holes in the ground, hiding in caves. They're not visible, they're not seen, they're not active. They've looked at the enemy and they have decided to retreat and to hide. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. That is Philistine territory. We read later on in chapter 14 that some of God's people have defected, deserted. They've got so discouraged by what they are facing, the enemy force against them, that they have actually jumped ship and they've moved over to the side of the enemy. Saul is at Gilgal. All the troops are with him, quaking with fear. They're hiding, they're deserting, and they are fearful. Now the Philistines I think can represent basically the darkness that is out there that opposes humanity, that opposes people made in God's image, that opposes the church. An intimidating threat that takes many, many different forms. Daniel shared a week or two ago about the the sort of blast of information that we live in, where we're constantly exposed to bad news, and whenever you look at it too much. You could very easily sort of take on this attitude that God's people had in this story of just retreating back and thinking, I can't do anything about the culture that we're living in. It is what it is. And there's no point in even trying to effect change on any level because the enemy force is too strong and too great. But God's people are not called to hide. We're not called to caves. We're not called to have a faith that is only exhibited on a Sunday morning for an hour and maybe once or twice during the week. We are called to be in the heart of society, to be in the marketplace, to be in business, to be in education, to be right out there rubbed in to the fabric of society, not to be hiding if we are to effect change. We read a little bit further on in chapter 13, towards the end of the chapter in verses 19 and 20, and see that the Philistines have got a monopoly on iron. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel. Nobody to make weapons. Nobody to sharpen swords. Nobody to equip God's people for battle. To the point that if you wanted to sharpen your, the tools that you used on the farm or in your workshop, you had to go to the Philistines with your tools to get them sharpened. There were no blacksmiths in Israel. So you have the people of God who have no weapons. In fact there are two swords. Jonathan has a sword and Saul his father has a sword. The entire army of Israel, God's people are not equipped for battle. They do not have what they need to fight the enemy that they're facing. And it probably is is a an apt picture for some in the in the church today who are not equipped. Ephesians tells us that that the the role of leadership and the role of apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, pastors, teachers in the church, they are to equip the body of Christ for the work of ministry. They're not to exclusively do the work of ministry. There is to be an equipping of others, putting swords into people's hands. battle. It's like the role of the blacksmith. And the sword throughout the Bible is frequently used as an illustration for God's word. And if we're going to battle against the culture and the darkness that we're in, we need to know truth. We need to know this. And it's not that we know this so that we can be smart and win an argument with somebody over coffee in the canteen at lunchtime. We need to know it that we can stand against the darkness of culture. The Bible is not there for you to win an argument against somebody at lunchtime. You need to be equipped because your struggle is not against the person in the canteen who is also made in the image of God. Our struggle is against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms who feed culture with lies and distortions and confusion. And if God's people are to fight against that army of confusion and distortions and untruths, we need to know truth. There have to be blacksmiths in the church who will put the sword into the hands of people so that they know the truth of God's word and how to live for him. So where are the blacksmiths in the church is, uh, is one question. There's no blacksmith among God's people. You had this entire army with this threatening force against them, and nobody was actually equipped for battle. Now, in chapter 14, we'll get really into the, into the meat of this. Chapter 14, let's see where Saul is. Saul's the king that the people had asked for, that was anointed by the prophet Samuel. Saul, while this Philistine force is amassed against his people, Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah, Under a pomegranate tree in Migron. Now, don't be too harsh on Saul as if he was just sitting, you know, faffing around under the tree because he'd nothing better to do. People in those days would have set up a court with officials and with uh, a priest at a prominent landmark like a large tree. You'll read about this several times in the in the Old Testament where they meet under a tree. They're, they don't have buildings. They don't have permanent structures. So they, they have these landmarks where they would gather. And with him at that tree were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. There are times when you read your Bible and you see names and you think, yeah, whatever. And then there are times where you think, hang on here, something's wrong. And if you know the story of 1 Samuel, Phinehas is a bad spot. Okay, Phinehas is the son of Eli and Phinehas was a really messed up guy who took advantage of people who used the priesthood to get what he wanted who did not know God and who did not serve God faithfully and back in the early chapters of 1 Samuel God rejected him as priest and he rejected the family of Eli as priests he basically said you do not any longer represent me but Saul has reinstated one of this family to be his priest. He has reinstated this guy, Ahijah, who is a descendant of Phinehas and said, you're going to be my man who talks to God and who tells me what God is saying. Even though God had rejected him, Saul still took this guy and made him priest because Saul did not want to listen to the pure word from God. That was coming via a prophet called Samuel, who was an absolute legend on the pages of your Bible. Saul heard or Samuel heard God from a young age, called by God, faithful to what God told him to do and the message he was supposed to bring. And Saul did not want to listen to it. So Saul rejects Samuel. He pushes the true word of God aside and he puts a puppet in place who will tell him what he wants to hear. Now that is easier to do than we might think. Sometimes the word stings a bit. I don't know about you, but sometimes it can be a wee bit stingy. Sometimes you will read something or you will hear something and you think, ah, oh, that's challenging. That's tough. Obeying that will be difficult. And what Saul did and what we sometimes can do is push that to one side and just listen to something that's a wee bit easier, a wee bit less challenging. Saul had rejected Samuel and gone to other sources to try and hear from God. So Saul had a sword. He's sitting under the tree. He's got 600 men with him and he's got this false priest, a But there's one other guy who has a sword and his name's Jonathan. And not only did Jonathan have a sword, Jonathan's got a bit of fight in him. (laughs) And the reason we're going to spend a week in Jonathan and a week in Caleb and a week in Abigail is because these three people, it's said about Caleb that he had a different spirit. These guys were, were, they were standing out. They were not just going with the flow. They were not just behaving the rest, you know, the same way as the rest of the people around them. They were standing up, they knew their God, they were standing firm, and they were taking action. And Jonathan is one of these people. I used to, you know, in early days of of reading the Scriptures, I used to just see Jonathan as a minor player, David's mate, who helped him out a few times when Saul was trying to kill him, but wasn't, you know, of huge importance. But the more I think about Jonathan, I love this guy, and I think he's actually a giant uh, in, the, in the history of God's people. So Jonathan has a sword, and Jonathan is fed up. It says in 14.1, One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armour bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. So Jonathan sees the army, the Philistine army, threatening God's people. He sees this pervasive, dark influence that is coming from them that is causing fear among the people of God. And he looks the other direction and he sees Saul under the pomegranate tree with his toothless army that don't have any weapons and his false priest telling him things that have not come from God. And Jonathan's fed up. Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost. Eugene Peterson in the message inserts one word after come, and I love it. He says, Come on. Come on. And Jonathan says to Zarmerberg, Come on, enough of this, enough of the complacency, enough of the mediocrity, enough living under the shadow of this thing. You let the Philistines represent whatever you want. Whatever it is that oppresses people, it could be addiction, it could be poverty, it could be hopelessness, it could be abuse, it could be unemployment, it could be despair, it could be broken relationships, but there's something that is just oppressing people. And Jonathan says, come on, let's actually step forward and take a stand against this. And he goes on to say, that we're the, the Lord, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Maybe. <laughs> the Lord will actually join us in this mad adventure. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Love that. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. He does not need a massive army. We know that from the story of Gideon and from others in the scriptures as well. He does not need a huge number. Nothing can hinder him. Paul would take that and put it like this if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can stop this thing that God is doing? In Acts, I think it's chapter five, one of the one of the leaders in the Pharisees says about you know Peter and I think it's Peter and John or Peter and James, I can't remember, but they've been taken captive. And one of the leaders says, Listen, if God's in this, you're not stopping it. If God's not in it, it'll fade out. But if God's in it, No one's going to be able to stop it. And Jonathan has that attitude. If God's with us in this, who can be against us? And he did not have a word from God. I want you to get this because I think this sometimes can cause us to hesitate for a long time. There's something that's on our hearts. There's something that is grieving us. And we're waiting for a word from God. Jonathan didn't have it. Jonathan just looked at the situation and he said, this is not right. And I'm going to step out and do something about it. He did not have a prophet come and tell him to go. It's good when that happens. He did not have a dream or a vision or see an angel or hear a voice. He just looked at the situation. And I think we need to do this. The Church needs to do this. He looked at the situation. He looked at the way people's lives were being oppressed by the dark Influence of the Philistines, and he said, "That's not right. I'm going to go and do something about it. Maybe God will help. Perhaps God will will act on our behalf. Be careful. I, you know, I say this, you know, cautiously, because I don't want people to be reckless. But be careful that you don't spend vast amounts of time waiting for some huge sign to tell you to do something that's already in your heart." that's already grieving you and causing the spirit within you to grieve. You might look at young people or old people or single people or, or lonely people or whatever, You know, something that, that grieves you. And I would say to you, don't wait for years for some sign to get up and do something about it. If you're feeling that grieving in your heart, you've already got the Holy Spirit dwelling within you in all his fullness, and he grieves through you. And if you feel it, he's feeling it, and maybe we should do something about it instead of waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for some huge sign to confirm it. There are times that might be the right thing to do, but there are also times that it can lead to long delay in obeying God. So Jonathan didn't have that. All he had was he knew his God. The people who know their God stand firm and take action. Saul didn't know God. And Saul's priest Ahijah didn't know God. And Saul was sitting around not doing an awful lot. Probably talking a lot. His counsel under the tree. A lot of talk. A lot of you, maybe we should do this and maybe we should do that. And Jonathan just gets fed up and he slips away and he says, maybe God will do something. Jonathan knew the God who split the Red Sea. He knew the God who split the Jordan River. He knew the God who brought the walls of Jericho down. And he looked at these Philistines and he said, I know my God. I'm going to stand firm and I'm going to take action. Because it's the sort of thing that God might just get on board with. He didn't have resources, one sword. And he didn't have a massive number of people, one young armor bearer. But he still went for it. And this armor bearer is an interesting pup. He's the sort of person that you like to have around you. Okay. He says to Jonathan, Jonathan comes to him again and says, Come on, we're go- we'll go and do this. And and the armor bearer says, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. We used to have liturgy in the Church of Ireland where where we were raised. And liturgy was something that at the time I probably didn't appreciate enough. But now there is part of me that misses it and sees the value in it and the depth in, in a lot of it. But here's a little liturgy for you. I say, come on, okay? This is a wee bit of audience participation. And you say, go ahead. Are you ready? Come on. Go ahead. There you go. The Lord be with you. And also with there we go. A wee bit of old liturgy as well, yeah? That's the sort of bouncing off people that we want to have. Jonathan's a come on sort of a guy. Jonathan's the guy that sees it and says, come on, we can do this. Come on. Come on. Let's be having you. I think we can do this. I think we can see some action here. And then the armor bearer is the guy that says, yeah, go ahead, let's do it. Let's give it a shot. I'm with you. I'm, ver- I'm very go ahead. Tanya came and chatted to me on Thursday night about doing the living room again. It's like, go ahead. <laughs> you know, just go for it. I'll be go ahead with everything. Anything at all that somebody says, I would like to try this for the kingdom. I'd like to try this to see People no longer live under Philistine darkness and oppression. The answer will always be the same. Go ahead. You know, the amount of funds available might be limited, but they will always be, yeah, go ahead. I'm with you. What if it fails? What if it fails? Who cares? Give it a shot. Don't live in fear of failure. Permission to fail. Permission to try and fail. That's grand. Better than not trying at all. Go ahead. And I think the armor bearer, this guy, that if you can picture Jonathan and this guy beside him, the armor bearer. You know, on this occasion he didn't have a lot to do. There was only one sword, uh, but he he normally would carry the stuff. He would be beside you on the front line of the battle. He would encourage you as this guy did. You can do this. What do you need? Do you need a sword? Do you need a spear? What you know? What is it at this particular time that I can that I can give you? And he's a brilliant picture of the Holy Spirit. Because in, in, in John, whenever Jesus describes the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, and the life of Christians, he uses a word paraclete that means the one called alongside to help. And that's what this armor bearer is like. He's with you. He's not back home barking out orders while you go to the front line on your own. He's with you. He's equipping you. Merlin read earlier about the gifts that God, God's people have. The paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the armor-bearer comes and says, here, you need this. You're going to need this for this job. But now you need this. I'm with you. Go ahead. You're not on your own. And their battle plan then just completely defies logic. They have the element of surprise, the two of them. They're sort of low down and the Philistines are on the higher ground. They've got the element of surprise, but they just immediately decide to blow that. Jonathan says, we're going to cross over and let them see us. This is not sort of normal military tactics. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we're going to stay where we are and not go up. But if they say, come up to us, we'll climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. They give up the element of surprise. They make an exhausting climb up to this you know, elevated position that the philistines had it was complete madness ever done something that's just madness again not out of recklessness or out of carelessness but out of a real sense that something is not right and that you're stirred up enough to actually take action about it it could only succeed if god gives them into our hands that's the only way that this battle can be won. We can't physically do it. No strategy will allow us to win over against this larger, much larger army. It can only work if God gives them into our hands. And just so you know the name Jonathan if we can get it. Yes. The name Jonathan means "Yahweh, God gives. God gives." So his whole life is all about every time he thinks about himself, you know, in his own name, he knows that he has a God who gives. And as they approach the Philistines, then the mocking begins. And this will always happen. If you try to do anything in the kingdom of God, you will be mocked. Always. You will have people, you will have armor bearers, hopefully this place is full of them, who will get round you and get behind you and say, yeah, go ahead. And not only say go ahead, but on Friday night say, I'm with you, I'm going to be there. But you'll have people who mock you. And the Philistines, as soon as they see Jonathan and the armor bearer, they say, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. Mockery. You can't do it. You're not going to amount to anything. You don't have the resources. You don't have the skills. You don't have the training. You are small and you are weak and you're insignificant. You cannot pick a fight against an enemy this big. The mockery. It's the same thing happened with Nehemiah. Whenever Nehemiah went to rebuild the walls, the mockery came and they came and said to him, your wall, Nehemiah, if a fox ran along the top of your wall, it would fall over your wall's useless. You'll always have those voices that will come in and say, it can't be done, you can't do it, maybe somebody else could, and, and they try to threaten and mock to the point that you back down and you go back to the hole you were hiding in and you don't do the thing that God has stirred you up to do. Whenever the fight happens, there's, there's, there's 20 men, we'll get to it, but tw- 20 men are killed in an area of about half an acre. Now you might remember, you might not, back to the first or one of the first slides, the number of Philistine men was actually innumerable. (laughs) There were so many of them that couldn't be counted. So who cares about 20? Like what's, what's the big deal whenever, you know, if that's all you've achieved, that's not very much. Sure it's not. It's pretty good, I guess, for two guys to kill 20 men. But the enemy again would mock and say, even if you take 20 men, behind them there's an innumerable army. You're not going to make much impact. Don't even bother. It's hardly worth the, the, the while getting blood on your sword to kill 20 of them when there's so many others behind them. It's only about a half acre of ground. What's the point in fighting for a half acre of ground? It's small. It's insignificant. It's insignificant. And you will always get that. You'll always get, it's, you know, a a voice in your head saying, it's only one person. Why would you bother investing time in one person or two people or three? It's just a handful of kids on a Friday night or whatever night. It's just a a counselling office. It's, It's so small. You know, you'll always have this voice, it's so small. You know, yeah, you've got that far, but you really haven't made much impact. Give up. Go back home. Go sit under the tree and listen to Ahijah with his nice sermons that make you feel good. And it's like Jesus in the wilderness having to fight through that barrage of of just temptation, insults, mockery, just these, these, these voices coming into his head trying to get him to back down from what he's been called to do. As they go up... I've lost one. Yeah, I've lost one. Where's it gone? Oh, it's gone. Anyway... Up at the top here, as, as they go up, they use their hands and feet. And I think that's just a little picture of prayer. On their hands and feet. Hard work, effort, humility, down low. They don't go up in a, in a black hawk chopper. They go up on their hands and feet. Effort, commitment, praying over the long haul. And against all odds, they get to the top. And when they're done, 20 men lay dead in a half acre plot and what happens then is pure gold (laughs) absolute gold what happens whenever you decide to fight and i'm moving towards a close whenever you decide to be a person who knows god knows the character of god looks at a situation and says that's not right I'm going to take a stand. Maybe, perhaps, God will fight for us. Because what happens is class. The first thing that happens is that panic grips the kingdom of darkness. Reading on in chapter 14 and verse 15, it says that panic struck the whole army. So the enemy says, the, the, you know, the Satan, the devil would say, ah, uh, oh, you've only killed 20, it's not a big deal. But after that 20 are killed, something, a shock wave goes through the rest of the enemy army. Panic struck the whole army. In the camp, in the field, in the outposts, the raiding parties, and the ground shook. Whenever one person, two people, stand up, and move forwards, there are shock waves that go through the enemy. That which looked so intimidating, so powerful, so threatening, now starts to shake and crumble. There is a panic that goes through the kingdom of darkness whenever God's people stand up to fight. Second thing that happens is God fights. The battles are always God's, but so many times before God fights, His people have to first of all stand up and take a step forward, and then he comes in. He says, This is my battle. You go to the front of the battlefield and you sing and you praise, and then I'll do the fighting. Hezekiah, you stay faithful. I will show up in the middle of the night and I will wipe out that army that is besieging the city. God does the fighting. But he needs faithful men and women who take their stand and step forward before he will do it frequently. God fights. It says the panic that goes through the enemy army was sent by God. They weren't scared of Jonathan. They weren't scared of the armor bearer. And they weren't scared of the one sword. They were scared of God. A panic from God rips through. But it didn't come until Jonathan stepped forward. It didn't come until he took action. And I think whenever God sees what I would call faith-filled initiative, you ever have somebody say to you, just use your initiative. <laughs> you know, Somebody asks you something, figure it out yourself. Use your initiative. I think God, when he sees people using their initiative in faith, because they want to stand against something that they feel is grieving the Holy Spirit, I think that then serves as an open door, an entrance point for God then to take action. I don't believe in Lone Ranger Christianity. I don't like people just going off on their own and doing something independent with no sort of connections or network or governance. I believe that can be dangerous. But over and over again in history and in the scriptures, it will take one or two people or three people to make that initial move. And then God honors that. Rosa Parks, all right, the black lady who would not give up her seat on the bus in the 1960s in America for a white person to sit down instead of her. It takes one person to take a stand and say, no, no, this is not right. You get to watch the enemy self-destruct when you decide to fight you think you're gonna to have to deal with this whole army, but the army turns on themselves. Have you ever faced something oppressive, faced something almost insurmountable, and you've battled and you've battled and you've prayed and you've stood your ground, and then all of a sudden it just seemed, you just seem to stand and watch as it collapses in on itself. It's class. They find whenever the army come, they find the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. He that sits enthroned in the heavens laughs. laughs. I do believe God laughs times at his enemies as they're just losing their head and, and wildly striking out and destroying one another. God is belly laughing. hope that's not disrespectful. Total confusion. You get to watch the enemy. And do you know what? This is the, when, you, when you read chapter 13 and 14, this is the funny bit. This is the moment when you suddenly realize, ah, that's why God let all the Philistines have all the iron and all the swords and all the blacksmiths. <laughs> you know, you want all the swords? You just take them. Believe me, you're going to need them when you turn on each other. The Israelites didn't have them. They didn't, all they needed was one. They just needed the one that Jonathan had. God is happy enough. Sometimes again it looks you look at the at what the enemy's doing. I'm sure God's people looked at the Philistines and saw them gathering up all this stuff and thought this is awful. They're going to absolutely annihilate us, and God sitting saying, No, 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 no. You just wait and see what they're going to do with all those weapons. Another thing that happens is Satan loses his power over people. It's lovely to read in verse twenty-one. The Hebrews that we read about earlier who had been with the Philistines, and gone over to their camp, they now go back over to the Israelites. So I would put this, the de-churched return. The ones who were part of God's people, but had got so discouraged, had got discouraged with Saul's leadership and Ahijah's priesthood, and had left and gone over to the enemy, they now come back. Whenever people see a bit of fight in the church and see God's people actually standing up, they'll say, I want to be part of that. I'm actually going to go back. I'm going to be part of that. Not only do the de-churched return, but the ones who were hiding, the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country in verse 22, they came out of their hiding places. The Christians who never did anything. The Christians who just sort of played it safe and stayed in the cave and, and never you know sort of stepped to the to the front line a wee bit, they see Jonathan and they're like, I want a part of that. I can do that. And the not only do the do the de churched return, but the church itself rises up. And those who instinctively sort of hold back now step forward. Because they've seen somebody take a stand, they've seen Jonathan pick a fight. And the last thing that happens, and here I'm going beyond what, what is recorded in Samuel. Tomorrow's leaders are born. This is where the imagination starts to, to run a wee bit. Because I, I picture after the battle, uh, a couple of boyos from the Israelite army go back home to, to daddy's house for, for a break, for furlough from the army or whatever. And they're, they're at dinner one night, these guys. Um, big dinner table because this this man has eight sons and they're sitting around the dinner table and these older sons who have come back from the battlefield are telling the story of what happened everybody's sort of feeding and telling stories big family meal and they're saying about Jonathan and about the armor bearer and they're they're relaying this whole story and and I picture the movie scene as usual and I can see the camera sort of panning round and going into the the youngest one at the far end of the table the runt okay the overlooked shepherd boy at the far end of the table and his eyes are sparkling as he every, every a wee boy when you're telling them a really class story and he just goes silent and mm. just soak it all in and the eyes widen and widen and they just just sit there they don't comment they just listen And I can picture this wee boy at the end of the table just just taking it all in, listening to his big brothers who he idolizes and hearing the stories of Jonathan. And I picture the wee boy at the table saying, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. And the wee boy at the table, of course, in my imagination is David. And three chapters later, he takes down Goliath. And I'm going to say, I don't think he would have done it if he hadn't heard about Jonathan. I think the story of Jonathan's victory and the armor bearer against the 20 Philistines in the half acre that shook the whole army inspired David to say, I can do that. And he takes down Goliath and despite his failings, becomes Israel's greatest king before King Jesus. You see, you don't realize the implications of your actions on others and the influences you stand up and you pick a fight and suddenly others come along and say, I'm with you. I want to be part of this. You don't know who is watching and who is listening and who could say, I could do that. What's your half acre? What's your wee plot? It might be one person. You know, it could be your family, your half acre, your little patch, could be your neighbors. It could be a children's ministry, a young person's ministry. It could be your kitchen table, it could be a pool table. It could be a counselling centre, a sports ministry. It could be preaching and teaching. It could be leading worship. It could be organising and administrating a housing estate, a town, a council. And you look at it and you just say, that's not right. And I want to do something about it. And there are half-acre fights that need to be picked in every community and in every town, including this one. And you may think you have no power to do it. But if God before us, who can be against us? Maybe God will fight for us. Go ahead of us. And who are you? Are you the blacksmith? Are you the guy who equips people, puts weapons in their hands, teaches them, trains them, disciples, mentors? That happens on a Thursday night at the meal. The meal's not just about getting a convenient meal and having a night off cooking and cleaning dishes. Discipleship takes place, mentoring takes place, encouragement takes place. The blacksmiths are needed to put weapons into people's hands. Are you a Jonathan? Are you the one who says, come on, who sees what needs to be done and says, come on? Or are you the armor bearer who hears that and says, yeah, go ahead, I'm with you. We need all sorts in the body of Christ. So the people that know their God shall stand firm and take action. Let's be those people. Two more of them coming up. Caleb next week, Abigail the week after. Let's sing, yeah?